so we, we want to go on by coming back to the, the kind of four forms of effort that John referred to earlier on and how we actually apply these qualities of effort. And, and of course, we're here we're not just about talking about how we apply these efforts on a meditation cushion, but actually how we apply them in our lives. Because the four wise efforts are really about how we are engaging with our own mind. It's about how we're engaging with our own mind on a moment-to-moment -moment level. Now, if you remember yesterday, we talked about part of investigation is discernment. Discerning, because this is a bottom line of wise effort. We really need to discern what is skillful and what's unskillful, what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. We really need to be not kind of prevaricating around that, you know, because, you know, part of delusion is actually mistaking the unskillful to be skillful or the unwholesome to be wholesome. Mm -hmm. So this kind of discernment is actually really critical. But then on the basis of that discernment, we are engaging in every moment of our life in some way through one of the efforts. Huh? It's not to say that we're learning these new efforts. Huh? In some ways in our lives, we are engaging with these quality of efforts all the time. So I just want to list them again. So please, again, what I want to stress here is we're just not talking, we're actually talking about with engaging with the mind. We're not just talking about engaging with formal meditation. We're talking about engaging with our life. So again, just to, to really go through those, those kind of variances of wise effort, you know, to prevent the arising of the unwholesome, we deal with the negative first, to so prevent the arising of the unwholesome, well, that's an interesting one. To abandon the unwholesome that's already arisen. To learn how to release, it, let go of the unwholesome that's already arisen. To arouse the wholesome, to bring the wholesome, the skillful, into being. And to deepen, sustain, and perfect the skillful and the wholesome. So, Go on. Do you want to be writing this on the board? Or? No, no you can you remember all that? Yeah. Anyway, well, 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 okay, so let's, let's talk about the, the unwholesome that has arisen. And then we're looking at the factors of mind, which again are all so obvious to us, such as fetters and hindrances, states of mind such as anger, jealousy, resentment, all arising out of aversion, fear, anxiety looking at all of these whole unwholesome states that have arisen and doing something to cause them to decline. Yeah. Now, in a way, you can't separate the unwholesome from the wholesome here because, in a sense, part of what is going to cause the decline of the unwholesome is the arisal of the wholesome. Um, one thing I personally stress a lot is is actually this phrase that we often hear is, well, you know, if the unwholesome has arisen, just let go of it. Doesn't happen. <laughs> what you have to do is cause the arisal of the wholesome. Or if there's wholesome dimensions of the mind already arisen, such as kindness, compassion, to deepen it and to sustain it in the mind. 
Then, in a sense, I think I gave you an analogy the other day of sort of growing plants, but in a sense, in a sense there becomes no room for the unwholesome if you fully develop the wholesome, either in its unarisen state or in its arisen state. You're literally leaving it no space. So it's not a question of this kind of almost bland phrase, well, just let go. You know, it's a bit like saying to people, relax. They go, like this. Um, what it is is a question of creating the conditions for whatever is there in terms of the unwholesome state, be it anger, be it whatever it might be, whatever it might be, to let you go, rather than you to let it go. So the the volition here, the energy, is placed on the development of wholesome states. And I think that's a, personally a far more positive way of looking at it and saying, well, let's, let's delve into the unwholesome. Yes, and there has to be a certain noting of the unwholesome, but not an admiring of yourself in the unwholesome, but developing wholesome qualities of your mind. You know, wholesome qualities which are there, and let's face it. And the thing I, one of the beautiful things I think about Buddhist practice is, was right from its inception. It never tried to invent things that weren't there already in your minds. You know, those qualities are already there. They are just underdeveloped. That is all. You know, so all of us, for example, in terms of, let's just say, take basic Buddhist virtues. All of us are generous to a degree. All of us have kindness to a degree. All of us have compassion to a degree. All of us sometimes are concentrated and calm at times. Other times you might have insight or what was referred to yesterday as intuitions from time to time. We have these, but they are not fully developed. You know, they are in, an, in a sort of nascent or generative state at this time. And what we're attempting to do in these wholesome efforts, i.e. placing energy in them, is developing them in order to cause the decline of unwholesome states which have arisen and to prevent, actually, unwholesome states which yet haven't arisen from arising. Because just like the, you know, if you've got a really developed border in gardening, and the Buddha uses lots of sort of, sort of horticultural metaphors, you've got a nicely developed border where, nothing, where the weeds can't get through. They will not arise. Well, the only, the only thing I want to add is, is you know, again, you know, John was using the expression of, well, just let go. Well, that doesn't work. But I think also being aware that sometimes with the unwholesome, they are some of our most embedded tendencies. You know, they're, they're kind of that, almost like those primitive level of reactivity of, you know, striking out or running away. Now, uh, there is also a sense, you know, I mean, we talk so much about kindness in this practice, kindness in our effort, you know, patience. I also just don't want you to have the impression that there's no room for muscle in this practice. And no room for muscle in the use of effort, you know. And if you look at some of the suttas, you know, recognizing at times some of the really, really intractable nature of tendencies, the thing is, that we use muscle based on insight at times. You know, I remember someone recently told me that they had a habit of shouting at their partner and shouting at their children, you know. 
they thought they said to me, I just watch it, you know, I just watch it. I'm still shouting, but I just watch it. I thought, well, well, actually, you know, you're not reflecting on the consequences of this tendency. You know, and, and it's so caught up in the momentum sometimes of the unskillful that we actually we don't see the consequences, how we may be creating a, a legacy of fear and mistrust in those around us. And sometimes muscle based on insight, based on considering the consequences, is actually completely appropriate. You know, and if you look at some of the suttas, you know, where the Buddha's talking about like, you know, I, I was telling you yesterday, the other day when the Buddha's going through this list of meeting the intractable, you know, and try this, try that. Actually, in that list is press your tongue against the roof of your mouth. You know, uh, clench your fist. Do not feed the unwholesome. Do not feed. Not because it's bad or wrong or it makes me a terrible person, because I know the consequences and I know that by feeding it, I am furthering the habit of the unwholesome. You know, I mean, you know, years ago in therapeutic circles, it used to be, you know, it, you know, if you had a lot of anger or rage, go hit some cushions, you know, punch some bags. Well, you know, now, of course, neuroscientists have discovered, what are you doing there? You're deepening the rage groove. What are you doing? You have a contemporary cathartic release, but you're deepening the great rage groove. And I think sometimes in relationship to the unwholesome, whether it's the rage groove or the greed groove or the jealousy groove, sometimes it takes a little muscle not to. I just reiterate that because what the Buddha is actually saying in many many cases where we are confronted with the unwholesome, clench your teeth and do the opposite. In other words, it becomes very behavioral. And I think you heard me say last night in relationship to that um, particular student who was berating his Tibetan teacher because you know he was telling him to be compassionate uh, and he didn't feel compassionate. Well, just do it, you know, even when you don't feel it. And actually, that's a position. In many cases, with regard to our most intractable, unwholesome qualities, that's the position we have to be in, is literally the behavioral position. Alter your behavior. Yeah. Don't wait for the, you know, this authentic feeling, as I was describing last night, to arise. Get on and do the opposite. It might mean clenching your jaw and teeth and tightening your fist and just doing it. Yeah, and doing it enough times, it might become naturalized. Yeah. You spoke earlier about sort of meta to clench your teeth. Uh, I interpret it to be a, a, to be avoidance. And I was wondering if you could comment on It's a question of the toolbox again. You know, it's a question of the toolbox. I'm oh, sorry, the question of yesterday, I was, I think I, it might have been yesterday, we were talking mm. about, you know, really being like meta actually, not just being phrases, but and not having this kind of forced meta. And yet at the, today we're talking about actually seemingly really forcing something, and we are. Not forcing, that's not the right word. It's almost setting your heart upon, you know, that I will set my heart upon not engaging in that which I know to be destructive to myself mm. or others. 
okay? So again, I think we're coming to the question of the toolbox, you know, like it's not always right in that time when I'm maybe enraged with someone to be, so you know, may you be happy, may you be happy, but perhaps the net is going towards myself, you know, to see the suffering of that rage. Or perhaps, as John was saying, we actually look in the toolbox, what is needed in that moment, because again, we're looking at the effect of unwholesomeness is to contract the mind. Where the effect of wholesomeness is actually to expand the mind. Very, you, you can really feel that experientially. So sometimes we look in the toolbox, and what's not present in that moment is that sense of expansiveness and space, and spaciousness and patience. And maybe that's what we cultivate. You know. So again, it, it, forcing is not the right word when we use it talking about this kind of muscle in effort. It is committed restraint. It's committed restraint. It's not forcing, it's committed restraint. And however we embody that is just fine. The world will be a lot better for our committed restraint. I will be much more on a path through committed restraint than unleashed unwholesomeness. Yeah, the Buddha himself talks about lots of different forms of restraint. And the restraint comes through the, the reflection on the destructive nature of unwholesome tendencies. You know, when we begin to reflect, and uh, this is something that's often missed out, I think, in Vipassana circles, which actually was a big part of my early Tibetan training, and probably was with Christina as well, was actually reflecting on things. I mean, you heard her talking about reflecting on impermanence and reflecting on death and reflecting on you know, various aspects, you know, what it means, to this preciousness of being alive <coughs> at this moment and this sort of thing. Um, but there's also this reflection on looking at what good qualities produce, what wholesome qualities produce in this world, and counterbalancing them against what happens when you get angry, for example, when you let your anger go, or whatever the unwholesome quality is in this world, and reflecting on it. So that when you come possibly to a situation where it's this question of restraining, then the restraint comes a little more naturally. Because you, it's like knowing what the consequences is going to be. Viewing the kind of wake of destruction that you often leave when you just let these unwholesome qualities go. You know, and knowing how the opposite can heal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, so, how would you recommend working with 
I mean, the, the question was having the experience of being an extended family that probably has quite maybe perhaps different values than you have, and then feeling quite alienated at times, misjudgmental, uh, making them into the other. Uh, I mean, I, this is not, of course, always an uncommon experience. I, I have that several times a year in my online. <laughs> Um, I, 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 without being glib, I just want to draw a little bit on Tofu Roshi here, and, you know, who says, my, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist, but they love me when I'm a Buddha. <laughs> and there is, there is something where, you know, it is, first of all, don't overinflate the word judgment. You know, that it, it, it's, I mean, People in our culture have, a, of course, a terrible tendency towards self-criticism. But, you know, remember discernment. Discernment is very important. Now, when does discernment turn into judgment? You know, perhaps in those situations, many situations in our lives, where actually discerning something is unacceptable. Hmm? It may be absolutely accurate. When does it turn into judgment? When it gets hijacked by aversion. What does aversion do? It stops us from actually addressing, actually, the unacceptable often, because we get so caught in our aversion that we can't, that's where all our thoughts and our acts and our words are coming from. So what do we take care of as practitioners? We take care of the aversion. We don't surrender the discernment. Hmm? We don't surrender the discernment, but we do have to take care of the aversion. And there is, you know, there is a caution here about, you know, uh, the, the tendency towards clinging has no conscience, and it will cling even to the wholesome. And that's what creates the other. You know, I'm like this, you're like that. So it's really being mindful of that too. So I don't mm. add. I can't really add that much no, to that. Yeah, but you just want to yeah. say something. immediate action in that moment. Like, you know, if something makes me feel jealous, maybe that's something, like that's behavior, that's something I'd like to just do it myself. And I, like, and, and that actually fuels some positive action. It is. Similarly, the anger can, can pull me out of a situation that could actually harm me a lot. Um, and greed, you know, may make me just reconsider my priorities so that I can fit in all the things I want to do over time. But like, I just, that's what I want. Well, the question is about committed restraint, you know, but what committed restraint does, it, it creates a pregnant pause that allows for investigation. Mm. That's what it does. So it's not a kind of end in itself, committed restraint. Like when we step back from impulsive, reactive thoughts, words, acts, we're actually creating a pregnant pause that allows exactly for that reflection. So that is why it's so helpful, because then we start to explore... But then we can explore options. We start to draw on our own discernment, what we value, 
what is skillful, what is unskillful. But when we don't at times have the committed restraint, it, it's like standing in front of a, a, you know, a raging river, we just get swept downstream and sometimes we drown. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the point I was going to make, actually. We just get swept away. There is no, we've got nothing to anchor ourselves to. What the committed restraint does is allow ourselves to anchor us for a brief period of time to allow that observation to take place. If there is no observation and reflection, then we're just caught up in the whirlpool. Um, and that's very, very dangerous, not just for ourselves, but for everybody around us. Because I think one of the big things that I tried to emphasize the other day was that none of these unwholesome qualities of mind do we keep to ourselves. We spread them around, and we often spread them around very unwisely, you know, so that actually a lot of things come back to us as well, which have then become cause yet for more. So it's a kind of uh, a ceaseless circle of, you know, feedback loops when we allow ourselves. Now, this is just saying no at this stage and allowing ourselves to anchor, ourselves, anchor us to something which is firm, for that moment in time and allows that reflection, that pause to take place. Otherwise, we just get swept in. And I think, actually, it, it's, it's a whirlpool rather than just being swept downstream. It's a whirlpool that we get caught into. And one of the ways that the Buddha speaks about, you know, a, a liberated mind is a mind without residues. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and if you think about, you know, when, when we get so entangled in these kind of habitual, intractable, tendencies, the mind has so many residues, you know, of, of regret, of, of guilt, of shame, of embarrassment, of all then the strategies about, you know, it just creates so many residues. And, you know, in a way, in, in terms of the cultivation of the wholesome, the letting go of the unwholesome, one way of kind of like um, uh, orienting that, that direction it's, it's really dedicated to a heart without residues, mm. you know, and to sense the freedom of that, because that, that is really then the wholeheartedness, sincerity, the genuineness in every thought, word, and act that is leaving no trail behind it of, I wish, if only. Well, I think when we talk about without residue, it's, very, it's a very practical thing. It's saying... If we act in ways which are unwholesome, then just look at the wake of debris that you leave as you traverse your way through life. There's an enormous amount of debris, and that's the residue, and that residue catches up with you at some point in time. We need to move. Just, just one more, just one more question. <laughs> Um, I think we can leave that one for this evening, if for, for a general question. I mean, the brief answer is there are similarities, but there are also differences. Yeah. Okay, so but we've been talking about the letting go of the unwholesome that has arisen. Mm. Shall we move to the... <laughs> <laughs> The prevention of the arising of the unwholesome. Okay. <laughs> the prevention of the unrising of the unwholesome. Well, again, this is coming through reflection. It's um, one of the things, certainly in my own training, was be, to be taught about 
Uh, if we allow the unwholesome to arise, what are the consequences going to be? You know, what are the consequences of any unwholesome behavior that arises? So we deeply ground ourselves in understanding the consequences of wholesome action and the consequences of unwholesome action. And grounding ourselves in that reflection at least gives us, again, pause to, you know, to have further reflection to whether to go down one route or another. And I'm sure all of us have probably had moments and glimpses in our lives where you feel, for example, anger arising. And you go, hmm. You know, because in some senses you see the futility of it. You can see what else will be perpetuated. You can see what else will arise on the back of this. So the first stage is beginning to understand the consequences of, of what um, you know, unfettered, unwholesome arisings will produce in your life. But also understanding the opposite, as I was saying earlier on, understanding the opposite in the sense of knowing what the consequences of wholesome actions, such as kindness, such as compassion, such as generosity, will bring in your life. So it's actually opting for one rather than the other. You know, there is a rational basis for this. And as you've heard me say before, the Buddha isn't you know, averse to actually bringing some rationality into our understanding of why we should let go of the one and foster the other. And, I mean, there's, there's more dimensions of this mm. too, because I, I think, you know, when we were talking the other day about, you know, the mind actually minding, you know, and how our mind is always being shaped by conditions, none of us have an invulnerable mind that is completely exempt from conditions around us. We do much to actually cultivate mindfulness of conditions so that we are not so easily entangled in them. But if I put this in a very practical sense, for example, you know, preventing the unrising of the unwholesome. Well, you know, if I watched a lot of pornography, I am inciting something to arise, aren't I? If I, if I hang out in a bar all day, you know, I'm actually really bringing about conditions in my life which are probably not that conducive to clarity and compassion. And, you know, if I go out and, well, there's a whole range of things I could be doing in this life, <laughs> which, which is actually really, for whatever reason, being in conditions that are not conducive to liberation. You know, so it is also about the choices we make in our lives and it, it, about recognizing how, what are the conditions that actually really are conducive to the arising of the, of the wholesome. You know, and it's like in one sutta the Buddha says, you know, like associating those who associate with the foolish and unwise have about as much chance of tasting the dharma as the ladle has of tasting soup. So, and again, it's not going into that extreme of, you know, this selective world where I only talk to people that I have something in common with and, you know, only hang out with other practitioners, you know, or it's not about confining our world in that kind of puritanical kind of superior way, which mm. would be very, very unhelpful. But it, it because in the, so many conditions in our life, we don't 
control I choose. But it is about being aware of where we're actually, as John was saying, cultivating the wholesome to actually prevent the arising of the unwholesome. And some mm. of this is really quite practical, you know, and, and it's, it's really countering some of these human frailties to get entangled in the unwholesome very mm. easily. I think the word that's being used quite a lot, and particularly Christina's used it, and it's a very important word, is discernment. It's not making moral judgments about other people. So, for example, in the list of things, there's 12, you know, there's 12 things in the commentary that says which you should reflect on or restrain yourself or do. And one of them, as you heard me say earlier on, is avoiding being with lazy people. And that's not simply, as I said, out of a kind of moralistic stance. It's just knowing where it will get you if you associate. It's like it's, it's the equivalent of Christina saying, putting yourself in a bar. You know, in some senses, if you, unless you're extremely wise, you know, um, that this is going to lead to unfortunate consequences. You know, if you place yourself in a situation, you're generally going to end up almost as a self-fulfilling prophecy in being in a position. On the other hand, it says, be with energetic people. Be with people whose energy, in other words, enhances yours, brings you out. Now, these are very simple instructions, but they're instructions about discernment. You know, instructions about discerning what aids and what hinders at this particular moment in time, at the position that we're at. You know, it doesn't mean for all and every time, but it means in this particular state, as we discern ourselves in samsara, to know what is advantageous and what is disadvantageous in helping growth. I mean, arousing the wholesome, because I'm determined to get to the end of these five efforts as well. So it's not looking at <laughs> Arousing the wholesome, I think we have talked about this quite mm. a lot, but there's so many ways that we arouse the wholesome, aren't we? And almost in a way we need to acknowledge what is wholesome, as John has said so many times. You know, it's not just about what feels good, but actually what, what brightens the mind, what brightens the heart, what is it that leads us to feel more connected, more compassionate, more kind, more alive, more aware. And, you know, and, and it's not, here we're not just talking about more sitting, you know? I mean, clearly practice is part of this, but it, it is our whole kind of relational sense to the world, you know, to nature, or how we are present in the midst of a city. You know, arousing the wholesome is not just situational. It has a lot to do with the attitudes that we are bringing to where we are. And if I, you know, when you, when you pass a homeless person on the street, look, there, there it is. Isn't it? You could arouse the unwholesome. You can arouse the wholesome in that moment. You know, when you sit in a traffic jam, you can arouse the wholesome. You can arouse the unwholesome. really depends what you're remembering. really depends what you're remembering. But arousing the wholesome is about so much about sati, about remembering what is liberating, what is, what is calming, what is, what is connecting, what is enlivening. Mm. And there's one other word that I want to introduce here. It's not actually deliberately used in the text, but it's in a sense coming out of a lot of the reflections which are there to arouse the wholesome. And one of these words, this particular word, is inspiration. That which we draw inspiration from. Now, this might be, for example, the qualities of somebody, doesn't necessarily have to be a Buddhist, 
but perhaps somebody you're inspired by who exhibits wholesome qualities in their life and behaves well. Um, specifically, of course, within the traditions, this means drawing inspiration from the figure of the Buddha himself, figure of you know, perhaps contemporary teachers and, and even works that are written, things that will uplift the heart things will actually generate the energy to want to engage in the reflections and to engage in sitting, to actually make what you're doing something you feel to be vitally important. You know? That's where the energy comes, isn't it? When you feel something is vitally important to your life. You, know, you can feel incredibly tired, as Christina was saying earlier on, but you can draw on reserves of energy that you didn't know you have if you think something is really, really important. And so out of this inspiration comes a valuing. You know, valuing. And that actually then comes into words which we haven't touched on, which I'm sure we will, such as things you might need to renounce in order to go towards that which you value more in your life. You know, so it's a simple case of giving up things in order to develop and generate those things you consider to be more important. Inspiration is an enormous part of this. You know, and I think this is what is implied throughout a lot of the traditions when they talk about lineages and the figure of the Buddha and contemporary practitioners and followers of the Dharma. And these are all the reflections, really, that, 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 that are there within the commentarial text. But they're all about how do I draw inspiration to reawaken the energy, to reawaken this desire, actually, to practice. You know, but practice not separate from life. To sustain and deepen the wholesome that has already arisen. <laughs> this is really important. And I, I just want to, you know, something we've referred to a couple of times about how we seem almost wired to give, to notice and highlight the imperfect rather than that which is well. You know, and, and how much time we, we seem to be inclined to give to, you know, I should be like this, I have to get rid of this. And, and yet, for all of us, there are many moments in our day where the wholesome is present, and we need to start noticing that. You know, for example, we talk about selfing. Well, I'd encourage you to look at all the moments in the day where you're not selfing. Mm. There's actually really a lot of them. You know, there's really, really a lot. I encourage you to, to, to be aware of all the moments in your day, you know, where there's a sense of gratitude, kindness, appreciation, spaciousness, calmness. You know, I remember so clearly teaching retreat once, there was a woman on the retreat having, you know, most wonderful pity, joy. And she said, I think it must be a hot flush. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because it's so the tendency to kind of structure our perception around something being wrong or amiss. But to notice the moments when you're actually really aware of your foot touching the floor. Because the, mo the more that you actually really notice, value, acknowledge all of those moments when the wholesome is present, you are in a process of sustaining and deepening and naturalizing the wholesome. And the thing is to take delight in the wholesome. To actually take delight in the wholesome. Because as John was speaking about, there's nothing more inspiring than the sense of really being moved by a sense of delight mm. and happiness. 
you know, it's, it's, hard, it's hard graft, you know, when all our motivation is born of what I'm get, I need to get rid of and fix. Mm. You know, that's really, it's, it's very hard to sustain that kind of motivation. Mm. And it doesn't mean denying that at all. It doesn't mean going to a kind of, you know, airy-fairy, you know, life is just terrific and I'm amazing, you know. Uh, but, but it does mean really, just really acknowledging all of those wholesome moments which actually don't have so much me in them. Have you noticed that about the wholesome? It's actually not so much selfing in them. And the other thing about the wholesome, you notice, it's very little storytelling. Mm. It's very little storytelling. You know, if I just appreciate something or someone, I don't have to get into a big story about it. There's much less storytelling, there's much less selfing. So it's almost kind of like really learning to savor those moments because that is what sustains and deepens and brings the wholesome to unshakability. And the movement of uh, developing the wholesome is the movement away and outward. It's outward into the world, whereas the movement towards the unwholesome and the selfing is inward. You know, so the mo- there are two different movements here, literally and you know, metaphorically. When we are selfing, we are tied up, almost looking backwards into ourselves. You know, and the self is then reified and reinforced by that. When we start to develop by its very nature, let's take, take the wholesome qualities that are spoken so much about, when we just start to develop kindness and we start to develop compassion, then we turn outwards. You can't have compassion turned inwards. You know, we can do it towards ourselves, but the actual very nature of compassion, actually the word compassion, you know, karuna in Sanskrit and Pali, actually is derived from a root, which actually is very easy. It means to turn out. In other words, when we turn away from our own self-obsessions, we see others. And then compassion arises when we start to see others. When we're turned inwards, there can be very little room for compassion. So the wholesome is always the movement out into the world. It's out of the prison house of self. Which is where we're going to stop, I think, is it? Yes, I think it's probably. We've left you with moving outwards out of the prison. And, and, <laughs> and, and tonight, well, it's all about joy. So. <laughs> um, so that is actually a good time to pause, I think. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.